This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. To coincide with the UN Climate Change Conference, aka COP26, which is happening up in Glasgow this month, we're launching a short spin-off series just on ESG, which is Environmental, Social and Governance Factors. Now, this is a discussion that we're well-versed in by now, as it's been the hot topic within the industry for the past couple of years. But in this mini-series, which we'll release on Thursdays, we're specifically interviewing four or five experts who approach sustainability from a different angle or challenges some conventions within ESG. That being said, we do have to include a very short disclaimer that the opinions and views expressed by our guests are not necessarily representative of the value team or Schroeders as a whole. For our guests in our ESG mini-series, we have Jim McDermott. Jim rose to prominence in the first tech boom when he was the co-founder of Stamps.com. After its sale, Jim pivoted into more eco-focused projects, including electricity and natural gas markets, solar energy, and most recently as the founder of an investment firm which focuses on resource efficiency and leveraging waste streams as new resources. He's also the founder of a company which turns garbage into clean domestic biofuels. In this episode, Juan and Andrew Lydon interview Jim and discuss carbon emission management, the tension between developed and emerging markets in the climate change debate, and hydrogen versus nuclear energy. Jim, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, can you please give us a little bit of background about yourself and especially how you ended up working in climate tech? Because I think that your background, like you started uh, in, with a, within a very different investment sphere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess a very quick background. I started off my career working for uh, First Boston on energy and infrastructure in 1989. And I did that for about five years. I ran, um, also did a lot of credit derivatives uh, before it was all kind of scary voodoo. Uh, and in, 99, in 1995, I decided to move back out to California. I was living in New York City. I'm originally from the West Coast. So I didn't um, feel any particularly strong reason to remain in New York. Uh, they were gonna do a big deregulation that was gonna be largely wind and solar. And I had built a lot of, and financed a lot of, wind, uh, well, coal, natural gas power plants. And it was pretty clear to me at that time that we were on a big, long, slow march to decarbonize things. Uh, and so I figured that the next wave would be wind and solar. So I actually moved out to California, um, got out here, the deregulation went very wrong, uh, ended up with Enron uh, and a whole bunch of litigation and whatnot. And the joke is in California, if you can't make your, your original dreams happen, start a software company. So I started a software company uh, because I was unemployed uh, that printed postage because I was sending out resumes. And I built that up into a company that's still, still here in Santa Monica uh, called stamps.com, which has um, actually just went private again, uh, has 93% market share. Uh, and I, I took, um, so that was by, by about 2000, I, um, I sort of made a, a fair amount of money that I didn't anticipate ever making. So I took that and I formed US Renewables Group which was a private equity firm that I ran for 16 years, focused on stationary power generation, clean fuels, uh, and energy infrastructure. So I, I really kind of came at the climate thing, mainly from a, a long-held belief that the history of what we do is to decarbonize slowly, um, starting, with anthra- you know, starting with anthracite coal and moving all the way through solar, you could see it happening. Um, 
But I got to climb it really because really by about 20, actually in about 20, 2009, I met David Keith, who was the founder of Carbon Engineering. And uh, he wrote a pretty seminal paper uh, that was really about the, about the chemistry and the, and the kinetics of removing carbon from the atmosphere. And, and it became very obvious to me at that point that despite all of the um, great work that had been done in wind and solar, we were nowhere near the goal of, of having a, a, a zero you know, a net zero economy, much less a, a negative emissions economy. And I, um, when I started to do that math and look at that really in 09 and 10, I realized that not only was it going to require sort of one of the biggest lifts that humanity could dream up, but it also represented the single biggest economic opportunity I'd ever seen. And I, maybe I'll close with this, which is I, I tell my kids all the time, I never thought I'd live long enough to see the internet twice. Uh, <laughs> Because I believe that the economic opportunity that carbon, particularly removal of carbon, represents is on a scale larger than the internet. And I was fortunate enough to sort of show up right as the internet got going. And I feel like, um, you know, I got lucky. And then here comes another wave that that uh, that is interesting. That's a great segue into our first question, which is, um, could you please explain the difference between um, controlling carbon emissions and doing carbon management? I think that I've heard you in the past mention that the, the world is very much focused on the issue of emissions, but actually the largest problem is the uh, pollution that's already uh, part of the environment and yeah. what can you do about it? Because I think that you've said that, correct me if I'm wrong, you could stop all emissions tomorrow and still you would have a very large problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think really what... what what really hit me, this is really, again, sort of in the kind of 2012 timeframe was that I started looking at the total dollar amounts that were being expended globally on sort of CapEx on wind and solar, right? And, and to sort of frame it for you, right, we're spending about $300 billion a year right now on wind and solar globally. So if you think of it, it's like total sort of total addressable market for, for uh, low carbon assets, right? But, and, and that's to get the three PPM increase that we're having every year to zero. But when you go through that math, what you pretty quickly recognize, and again, I, I'm, I hate to admit this, but I've been reading the IPCC stuff for like 15 years, which makes me <laughs> boring. Uh, but when you look at that, what you realize is that pre-industrial, pre, like you know, before, before the, you know, the, the revolution in, in the UK with coal, right? We were at about maybe 280 parts per million, give or take. And now we're approaching 420 or we're at 420. And what you realize is that when you take three over that number and you realize that it's 3% of the problem is commanding $300 billion a year. And just as anybody who's ever spending time thinking about capital allocation, you're like, well, wait a second. We're spending $300 billion to address 3% of the problem. And, and then when you go into the physics and the chemistry of it, what you realize is that CO2, you know, because it's a very stable molecule, has an enormous inertia to it. So we could where that gets you sort of mathematically is if we went to zero emission tomorrow morning, we still are 97% too high historically. Mm -hmm. and, and where that takes you is, wow, we have to get into the negative emissions business very, very soon. Like, I mean, immediately. And so I think what I've said in the past is that, you know, the carbon management business, is, I, I here's another way to say it. I think that the, that the atmosphere is the largest Superfund site that humanity has ever created. And we've got to get busy cleaning it up because even if we go to zero emission tomorrow morning, the Superfund site that's above all of our heads exists 
and will have profound climate effects for hundreds of years if we don't do something about it. Which is a sobering, that's like a really sobering thought, right? But I'm a big believer in sort of trying to meet reality where it is and then figure out how to engineer your way out of it. Like don't, that's very interesting. don't kid yourself about how bad it is. Take a very sober look at it and then say, all right, what are the financial engineering and policy tools that are available to us to deal with that problem? And which is really sort of that carbon management concept, which is to say, look, it's not an insurmountable problem, but we're going to have to first move it from a critical problem down to a or like a chronic problem, right? My goal really is to be part of turning carbon into a chronic management problem rather than, than fixing it, right? I, I don't think that's possible in my lifetime. I think it's possible to get it to a place where we're on a trajectory that we can see what we got to do and we're doing it, not fix the problem wholesale. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think the stoichiometry makes it possible. Hi, Jim. Um, Hi. I guess just coming to that kind of stock and flow issue for the, the carbon in the atmosphere that, that you've mentioned in terms of what's been accumulated there already and what incrementally is going up. Just kind of interested in your thoughts on how that plays into the idea of developed market versus emerging market and the the balance there between you know social issues and, and quality of life on the one hand um, and economic pro- um, sorry environmental progress on the other you know with the developed developed world being the ones who have put that stock in place and EM perhaps being the ones that are under more pressure to reduce the flow even though it's much smaller. Right. It's a, it's a good question. And it's a, it's a question that obviously, if you followed any of the COP discussions over the last 20 or 15 years, you know, it's front and center, which is you have a number of economies who, right, the, the blunt truth is growth equals CO2 emissions. So if you tell someone that they must reduce CO2 emissions and you don't offer them any growth mechanism, the answer is going, I mean, it's sort of, the answer is going to be the same every time, which is like, we're not going to do that because growth fixes so many other social problems. We can't afford to not grow. And if you're telling me that we have no method for growing without CO2, I mean, without emitting CO2, then it's a non-starter of a question. So I think for me, the, the issue is how do we turn carbon management into a growth opportunity such that everyone can benefit, right? And, and I think that that is, a, that is a thorny problem, but I think it's probably a problem that looks something like the you know the OECD the developed OECD countries essentially saying look we will provide capital markets access for you to build projects in your countries so that you can you know that you can get the employment and the M2 circulation and that sort of stuff to grow because we need you to participate we need you to decarbonize but we're going to have to provide um, some form of at least in my mind economic support in the in the form of cheap financing or you know, capital markets access or otherwise to, to make it happen because it's a it's an untenable uh, ask in my mind to say, well, okay. I mean, it's sort of like, all right, we're already in the boat. Let's pull the ladder up and you guys figure out how to survive. Like that's a that's a ridiculous uh, sort of stance to from which to operate. So I, I think really that the question is going to be how do you how do you derive a set of economic incentives that benefit emerging markets to participate. Right. And whether that's, you know, finding places where they can they can store large amounts of CO2 or figuring. But but I don't really believe that a sort of a tax and spend way like one of my favorite expressions in America is right. You subsidize what you want people to do and you tax them when, for the things you don't want. I don't think that a taxation strategy, given the 
the, uh, the, the speed with which we've got to get this done, it really is a, is a good answer. I think it's more of an incentive-based strategy, which will be how do we incentivize emerging markets uh, to participate in, you know, in, in the asset growth and the build-out and the employment associated with all of this? Because I think simply telling them to stop it is a, it's kind of a fool's errand. I think that you, you mentioned in the past that the developed countries, it, when you measure carbon intensity coming from developed countries, actually carbon intensity has been coming down, but the biggest problem is all of all of that very large population in more underdeveloped countries, which are, um, ho- are hoped to be connected at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And the sort, it, those numbers are so big that that's where the main problem um, will be. I wonder if, if, if one thinks about a country like China, I think that to a certain extent, they have already kind of moved towards trying to become more clean. But the problem is so large that they will still need to use um, very much fossil fuel resources going forward. I guess the question is, um, how much, for how long can you keep OECD countries doing their thing um, while the emerging market world comes out of poverty so that they can benefit from, from a transition to a more clean environment or to take the measures to, to, to transition to a more clean environment? I think your question is sort of how, how do you manage the fact that the gross number of people in emerging Asia dwarfs you know, all of the US and the EU? Uh, look, it's a huge, it's a huge lift um, because there's still, you know, the, the per capita GDP in most of emerging Asia is, you know, kind of nowhere near what it is in Western Europe or the United States. I, I think in my mind, again, this is where collaboration really has to play a role, right? It's 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 figuring out some coordinated way to engage in tech transfer uh, and and capital transfers so that you can accelerate the development of their low carbon economies, right? Um, and I, I don't I don't purport to have a perfect answer to that. Uh, I don't I don't know the answer, but I know that um, the sort of the traditional ways of sort of like as an example, developing IP portfolios and then trying to charge sort of massive prices to transfer that tech will not work given that given the time frames. I mean, often when I look at this sort of stuff, I, I see I see a very interesting analogous situation between sort of what we've been going through with COVID in terms of okay. A certain number of people have the know-how to do this sort of stuff, and they want to be paid for it because they invested in it. But we have this more sort of pressing problem, which is if we roll, you know, if the if we don't roll it out fast enough, then we get variants, and then all the money that got spent on delivering all these vaccines to everybody becomes obvious, and that's not good either. So I think there's going to be a sort of an ongoing tension of how quickly can we take the technical insights from, you know, Climeworks or carbon engineering or these other firms that are basically North American or European based and move them into the rest of the world in a way that we get the carbon reduction that we all desperately need, but that the companies and the investors get returns on. I I mean, and that is a thorny problem, but it's one that we're going to have to tackle head on. Um, And, you know, and it may well be that in the end, um, you know, I mean, there's talk of, in the United States of, you know, maybe some of these technologies are going to sort of end up on what effectively is kind of a, a war footing, which is the government will basically, the, the United States has a thing called marching rights, right, where they can basically march in and take something from you. They can expropriate it, even though they have to pay you, but just say, okay, look, you know, you guys are building these things too slowly. 
because we need we need thousands of them and you guys can only go at you know tens per year because there's only a number of people who pay for it and we're going to pay for it and we're going to push it out and make it go faster. I mean, I, I think ultimately as things get worse, the gov- you're going to see government intervention to, to increase the build rate. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't see how that doesn't happen. I mean, you're seeing it at the, like at the state levels in uh, particularly on the West Coast, right? There's an entire municipal bond finance market that exists. And they're, they're, you know, there are people already moving saying, look, the same way that we do pollution control bonds and sewer bonds and water bonds in California, we're going to have to have carbon bonds because this is an environmental problem that threatens our economic outcome, right? If you don't have water in California, you can't have farmers. Well, if there's too much carbon, you can't have things. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised is, is that what you're going to start to see here is people essentially changing the government rules in terms of how you treat carbon so that it, it gains a very preferential uh, cost of capital mm. in, in, in various regions. And that's how it's going to, I mean, basically they're going to turn to the government, you know, to the U S government markets or the, or the tax tax exempt markets in the United States to speed things. Because if you take 400 basis points off something 20 years, right. And you put 80% of the capital structure at 400 basis cheaper than all of a sudden the whole universe of things opens up to you. Yeah. You mentioned there the um, the urgency or you know the pressing need for action to be taken. Um, you know, how, how do you think about it in terms of timeframes? Because as you said, each incremental year is only adding a small amount of extra CO2 relative to what's already there, and the impact of those that stock of what's already there, you know, that will gradually increase over time. So it's not like in three years' time it's going to be a whole lot worse than it is now. So how do you balance up that? The, the need to be measured, I guess, for the with the need for for quick ta- quick action. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really good question, Andrew, and I don't know that I have a perfect answer to it. But but I, the way I tend to think about this, right, is that oftentimes, like I, well, I'll give you give you some examples, maybe that will be helpful. So I actually, when I first saw this problem, and I looked at, okay, you know, if we need to be taking ten gigatons out by mid-century, what does that mean in terms of the build rate? Right. Is it even feasible? Can we do it? Well, come to find out, if you look at the build rate for natural gas power plants in the United States starting in 1989 through 2000, and you look at the coal build rate in the U.S. between like 50, 1950 and about 1965, if you follow that, the trajectory on that, like the slope of that curve, and you just hold it constant through 2050, we could actually do it. Right. So it's not like we haven't had build rates before. So if you look at the natural gas build rate and the, and the coal build rate in the United States, and I didn't look in the rest of the world because it's easier to get data on that sort of stuff here. But so I, I think it's really just a question of can, can we get on that trajectory, right? And and I think that really means that, you know, it means that between now and really the 2030, we've got to get on that slope of the curve, which is, you know, it's a compounded growth rate kind of in the mid, you know, high 20s high 20s, low 30s. Like it's not a joke, right? I mean, you got to move, like, but it is achievable. So I think maybe if I had to put a number on it, it's like, I think we're going to have to get on a on a growth rate, a compounded, you know, a kager of kind of high 20s for direct air capture by the end of the decade. And if we get on that and stay on that, then I think we've got a shot, right? Um, which again, you know, that, I mean, that's not a joke, right? I mean, and but there are, you know, there are also like I looked at the at the growth rates on like dark fiber and storage from kind of 1995 through about 2005, right? We definitely hit that globally. 
I mean, and a lot of people, like the other thing is, you know, there's that, you know, then you go, wow, you know, like, I mean, I invested in like personally in like level three, I was in global crossing, like all these companies that, you know, people made a lot of money, right? And so I, I think if you can sort of get people to think about like, look, this has been done in the past, uh, and, and here, are the, here are concrete examples of it. And, um, you know, and if you do that and you pick those companies carefully in those sectors, you'll, you'll benefit economically. It's not like it's not like you have to do this for social good only. Um, but I think it's yeah, it's probably high 20s, low 30s, which, you know, um, you know, that's aggressive. I mean, right. It's but I think we have to be aggressive if we're going to get it done. But it's not like we have to, you know, it's not like you have to be doing it, doubling it every year for, you know, for 30 years. I mean, right. You guys are in finance and, you know, I was too. It's like, right. You know, the, the, the compounding nature of 20% or 25% per annum rule, rule 72 says that means the industry is doubling every two and a half years. Yes. But that goes on between now and 2050. There's going to be a lot of data plants out there. Thank you. That's really, really interesting answer. Um, just to bring it back to, um, you know, as, as investors, we get asked a lot about the, the oil, oil companies today and you you talked, um, you mentioned just now about companies doing it for, you know, the benefit of mankind or whatever. And we're rather than for economic for economic goals. And we're getting asked by clients a lot about those, that sort of tension at the moment in terms of how, what should we be doing as investors with regard to the list of oil companies? Should we be asking them to divest? Should we be, you know, working with them to push change? Um, do you have any views on, you know, the ways that investors can can best um, take us in the right direction? Yeah, I do. Um, and, and Ron and I sort of talked about this, and I've said this, I guess, on, on other people's podcasts, although I'm not on them very often. Um, the best example I'll give you is that when, um, first of all, I don't think it's a useful exercise in any way, shape, or form to revisit the past. It is, it is unequivocally true, and there's tons of data that every oil company that's out there, whether it was BP or Exxon or Chevron, they all knew, and they all equivocated, lied, and sort of disseminated. Like, it's just like, like going over that ground is just like, okay, I got it, right? We all got it. Yeah, they were bad actors. Okay. Question is, does that, does continuing that line of questioning and sort of browbeating do us any good? The answer is it does not. And so I'm very much in the camp of saying, or, or said another way that I was, my dad gave an example, right? So when the United States invaded Iraq, right, we go in there, we take down the whole country. And the first thing that they do is they say, nobody who is a Baathist can be engaged in any form of government. Well, the problem with that, right, was that the Baathists, and, I, and I'm not saying Saddam Hussein was a good guy, but the Baathists were the party that ran everything. They knew how to run the power plants. They knew how to run the civil service, like everything. And all of a sudden, we're like, nobody can be involved. The place deteriorates into chaos very quickly, right? And but you know we went in there and we straightened stuff out. It's like, well, did we? And and I and I, I feel very much the same way about the oil companies, right? Which is, look, if you look at where the resident knowledge for managing CO two currently exists today, is without question uh, within the oil companies, whether that's you know Saudi Aramco or BP or Chevron. These are the people who know how to take CO two out of the atmosphere, how to manage it subsurface. They know how to characterize subsurface. And they, and they know how to manage large capital asset buildouts. So why 
would you, if those are absolutely critical elements, and, and they're changing their tunes because they're being forced to, why would you spend your time berating? It doesn't make any sense, um, given the scale of the problem. Now, I don't think that that means that you have to admit that they were up to good things in past because they weren't. But and I think the other thing that, that is also really important about this is there's a tendency, I think, um, in public markets to want to vilify other people and effectively uh, advocate any involvement that you personally had. And the way I always try to summarize this is you drove your Prius down here to complain about the oil companies, right? And, and so this idea that somehow all of a sudden these people are all bad uh, and I and you know the people that are complaining about it had nothing to do with it. It's like the entire world is built on hydrocarbons and it's built an amazing world, right? We're all on TV because, right? We have this amazing network of things that are built from the electrons created from hydrocarbons. So the idea that you're gonna vilify the people who delivered those more than the next guy, I think is, again, a waste of time. And time is what we don't have much of. So it is much better to simply say, yep, it happened. Kind of truth and reconciliation, if you want. We know they did it. It was a bad thing to do. They're now being incentivized to do something else. And this goes to the incentive things. It's like you want to give them as many incentives to not resist rather than spending your time vilifying them and trying to tax them out of existence. I think it's much better to say, hey, we're going to give you a tax incentive to figure out how to take all those empty holes and put CO2 back into them and be the storage mechanism and be central players in the fix rather than spending our time talking about how, you know, Exxon's uh, internal memos show very clearly that they knew what was up and they lied about it. I, I just don't see that. I don't see the point given the urgency. And you, you know, we, that's very much a discussion for public markets, which, which we get a lot. And you, you mentioned um, Aramco in your answer there, and obviously some of the other national operating companies, you know, is there a way to change their behavior? Yeah, I think there's a way. I mean, you're seeing it like, like, um, like uh, there's, a, there's a couple of independents in the U.S. Like, uh, I don't know if you know Talos, but Talos, I'm, I'm actually an investor in a small company called Car uh, Carbonvert that just won the first offshore subsea, um, uh, you know, they're going to do storage underneath the Gulf of Mexico. And Talos was a joint venturist. So Talos is moving into, into CO2 storage subsurface, right? Stocks up 40%, Right. You look at like Denbury. Denbury is a CO2, I mean, they do a lot of CO2 EOR stuff. They're now talking about how they're going to reposition and try to get into the storage business, right? And I think that the answer is public markets should be like, what is your carbon strategy? Like, tell us how you're going to get in the garbage management business. And you better tell us right friggin' now, because otherwise we're going to continue to pull, you know, pull capital out of your stock and we'll rotate somewhere else. Right. But I think the idea that we're just gonna rotate out of the oil and gas business forever. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like, and the other one is that they're also, they have so much free cash flow. Like it's like it's cash flow that can be reinvested. Like one of the things that I that I constantly say to any you know oil and gas CEO is like, look, tell people that you're gonna reinvest all that free cash into low carbon assets. Like start doing that because then people at least can see the future. And they don't have to give you such a massive discount rate on the out years because, okay, it's 10 years out, but because all you need to be a competitor, I mean, if you're the CEO and your mindset is, I need to have the stock price higher, right? If I can demonstrate a low carbon strategy or a plan to get to a lower carbon world, then maybe all the public market guys are going to stop discounting me at you know 
and I get a 14% discount rate, and that equals, you know, X number of market cap divided by my share price and my strike, you know, my option prices are at X and now it's higher. And like, like you get that, that virtuous cycle up if you, if you, you know, have a plan and start executing it. Like, I think, and again, to me, that's much more incentive based, which is analysts should be all over these guys about, okay, you said you're going to be carbon neutral, check like that. What are you actually doing? Like, I want to know. But is it for you the answer for, to them, for them to diversify into renewables? So when you say invest that free cash flow I, into I would solar, wind, and okay. renewables, which yeah, is this, quite this, a different... Yeah, this is an interesting question. I think that one of the reasons that a lot of the, 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 the oil and gas people, they're going into renewables is because you can get cash flow now. That's not what's needed, right? What the public markets, I think, need to do is to give the oil and gas guys enough headroom to let them put money out into assets that won't be immediately cash flow positive, like direct air capture, right? That's really the where the capital markets can help is if someone articulates an actual plan, like like um, you know, Occidental, right? I, I, I've done a lot of work with them, right? And their work with 1.5 and carbon engineering, right? Those assets that they're trying to build in West Texas, right? Where they're going to do direct air capture plants in West Texas, those aren't going to be cash flow positive till 2025, 2026, right? But but they're going to do it, right? They're actually going to build a 500,000 ton per year facility west of Odexa. I mean, I, I was running it before I sold it back to them, right? So it's like those companies should be rewarded, right? But they got to have a plan. And it can't just be like, you know, hey, we care about, you know, like, I, I mean, I, if I was an analyst, I'd be like, show me the engineering designs. Right? I want somebody on the phone who's like, you know, who's actually in the weeds. Like, when is this thing going to be delivered? You know, how big, how long is it going to take to fire up? Stuff like that, which is the way, right? It, when you're running a private equity shop and management shows up, you're like, all right, like, great. Love the idea. Where's the execution? Um, it, it does seem to me, it does seem to me that the markets are not really that much aware about carbon sequestration as an, as an answer and a solution. They, they seem to be, the whole market seems to be very much obsessed with the whole renewable side of the business, which I guess it's important, but at the same time, doesn't seem to be the yeah. right answer. This is the single biggest problem, I think, in public markets, is that the idea that you're going to have to get into the wholesale uh, business of CO2 removal is, in their mind, it's not even, if you thought of yourself and think about it, Juan, basically what, what renewables are really is just a carbon management tool. If you, if you want to think about it sort of as a base principle or first principle, CO2 is the issue, right? And when a renewable is just producing an electron without CO2, But CO2 permeates everything. And I don't think the public markets really recognize that like renewables are this, oh, they're like, well, that's low carbon. It's like, yeah, but low carbon, it's a it's sort of a lower carbon, but we have this huge looming problem of all the carbon that's already up there. And that is direct air capture. And that has not quite gotten to the public, to the public imagination. And it's partially because there are no public stocks to buy. Right. You can't if you want to express that interest right now, you can only do it privately. Right. But, I mean, but it's interesting as well that the oil and gas industry doesn't. Well, not, I'm not I'm not an expert on, on energy, but I, I don't. And Andrew might correct me if I'm wrong here, but they don't seem to publicize that carbon sequestration as, as a possible solution. Um. I think if you were to delve in, there are people who, again, I. 
I mean, I, like, so I'm dealing sort of at the working level in a lot of these companies, like these big oil companies, they totally get it at the working level, 100%. They're moving as fast as they can. So I don't, I, I will disagree with you in the sense that at the working level, uh, you know, BP, Chevron, Oxy, I, you know, Saudi Aramco, all these guys are working very, very hard on CCUS, which is direct capture at point source, as well as DAC. Their CEOs, I think, are a little reticent to maybe talk about it because they're not really certain when the cash flow is coming, I mean, or it's maybe too far out for what the average hedge fund wants to see. But it, it's going on. I mean, and by the way, this is not, you know, I, I think one of the other things, if I maybe get on my soapbox a little bit, like, but like when I was a kid, right, I was super terrified that the, that the Soviet Union and the United States were going to have like this gigantic nuclear war. And then all of a sudden, right, one day in 1989, in the middle of college, the wall came down, the whole thing came apart. And what I realized after the fact was that there were thousands of people around the world working on the problem. And I just didn't know who they were. Like, I thought, oh, you know, the world is filled with super scary things that are going to happen. But what I didn't see, and, and I see this in carbon management, is there's this, there's, an, there's armies of people out there who are like, damn, we got to get on this, right? And they're working day to day, the engineers, the, you know, the accountants, the policy people, right? But you don't really see that. And then all of a sudden there's a big change. It, it's sort of like that. It's like almost like a black swan moment, right? Where all of a sudden there's a big seismic shift and then we're on that we're on that path and it's moving super fast and people go, where the hell did that come from? And you're like, well, it came from a decade of, you know, thousands of people all chipping away at the problem. And I think that's exactly where we are right now, which is that there's a whole army of people inside of oil companies, in many cases, who are working really, really hard on getting these things going because the inertia to start, you know, an entire industry is high, but it's happened. I mean, I see it every day. Just interested in your thoughts, if you have any on, you know, if, if you were running an oil company and directing that cash flow, whether you'd, you know, there, there's the, re the renewables on one hand, so you've got wind and solar, and then I guess there's the burning of hydrocarbons alongside carbon capture for, for blue hydrogen or, you know, that sort of thing. Just which, whether there's a, a choice that should be made there, whether there's room for both, just, just how you see those kind of two different groups. Personally, if I was running an oil company, I'd have a two-pronged strategy. I would be taking all the natural gas I could get my hands on. I would be turning it into hydrogen at the wellhead, and I would be re-injecting the CO2 back subsurface, right? So that I got a true zero-emission hydrogen molecule, and I would be figuring out how to, how to either pressurize that or sort of like, you know, go there. And then the second one is I would be building direct air capture plants as fast as humanly possible, and offering that as a service to the rest of the world. Because the way, Andrew, that I, I firmly believe this, by the way, the way that the direct air capture business is gonna work is that basically there's gonna be a series of hubs around the globe where the combination of low cost electricity, you know, large bulk storage, and then sort of the, the right policy and economic and financing, the United States will be one of them for sure. Um, what will end up happening is if you're in the UK and you're you know, running your local car manufacturer or whatever, it's, and you don't want to be in the CO2 business, right? The UK government has said you must, you know, calculate your CO2 emissions. What's going to end up happening is you're going to disaggregate the physical from the financial, and you're just going to buy from a hub. You're going to be like, I'm going to take 10,000 tons of West West Texas, like West Texas CO2. I'm going to take 10,000 tons from the empty quarter in Saudi, and I'm going to get a little bit of that stuff down there in Australia, and I'm going to buy it 
they're going to do the physical removal away from me. And I'm going to use financial, I'm going to disaggregate the physical from the financial, which is how, I mean, the way oil trades, natural gas trades, everything else trades, right? Money. And that that's how this is going to end up playing out, right? That you're going to, so, so if you're an oil company and you're sitting on top of a big, big old CO2 reserve, your move is to turn yourself into a waste management company as fast as you can and continue cash flow because we're going to continue to need the, the, ener- the energy, right, embedded in a hydrocarbon for a long, long time. Like, so figure out how you can offer a zero emission product. And, and the thing is, electricity, I mean, it's a horrible business in terms of returns, right? Let's say the oil companies can't do this because then they're in the utility business and the utility business doesn't give the same level of returns as the oil and gas business. Like, I mean, that, like you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. And so I'm like, I would be all about hydrogen that was zero emission by putting it again subsurface. And I would be all about getting incremental emissions for the different, like, you know, we're going to continue to use jet fuel. JP8, we're not going to be, you talk to, you talk to the big airline companies and the engine manufacturers, they're not going to be making a hydrogen engine anytime soon. So as long as there's JP8 during burn, you're going to need to be building an offset somewhere. And so I think it's direct air capture and low emission hydrogen. It's interesting that you mentioned the the hydrogen technology bit because I think that my understanding is that the technological developments for it to go forward aren't there yet. And it might take, it's very promising, but it, it might take many years for it to come through. So what would be your take on that? The journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. Like, that's my answer is like, yeah, it might. I mean, I'm 51. Probably none of this is solved. I mean, if we're all still working our asses off and when I'm 81, we'll probably be doing well. But the answer is we got to start now. And it, to me, that when I hear that a lot and I'm like, the other answer I have is like, yeah, man, the, the enemy, the enemy of the, of the good is the perfect. Like, we don't have time for perfect. So let's get after it. We know we know it will work. And, and like, you know, like I'll give you an example. People are very, very worried about, about the cost of hydrogen, right? Making hydrogen and stripping it from a natural gas molecule or, or electrolysis, right? Is that it's expensive now. And, and by the way, compressing it and moving it around is quite expensive, right? But there are, I've already seen stuff where people are using, you know, um, formic acid. I mean, there, there are other energy carriers, right? You can convert it into formic acid. You can do all sorts of stuff. You can already see, you know, people coming in and looking at electrolyzers and finding ways to optimize electrolyzers. And it's like, as soon as it's like, Wright's law is a thing, man. I mean, it's like, it's real, right? And, and, you, and the thing about Wright's law is you don't know when you start off how Wright's law will play out, like what the actual innovation will be. But what you know is if you look at it on a statistical basis, once you start doubling an in industry, price starts dropping. And it'll get, and it, you know, it becomes asymptotic at 0.6. And I believe in statistics. So I, do I know why hydrogen, like how hydrogen will be cheap in a decade or two decades? No. But do I know that it will be? I, I think it's a very high probability that. And if I can follow up on, on that question, um, the one thing that maybe you have never, you haven't mentioned at all is nuclear as part of the solution. And I'm very interested in hearing why why don't you think, or, or if you think that there is a place for nuclear in the meantime, while many of these other technologies get developed, or it's not? 
I do. I think nuclear, I mean, right. So I think SMR, small modular reactors, whether that's new scale or all the stuff that Bill Gates and these guys are in, I think those are absolutely going to happen. Um, I think they're real. I think, I think a lot of money and time. And again, this is one, I know this is like, I live in West LA. So like, this is super deeply unpopular, right? But if you look at it statistically, how many people have died from nuclear accidents relative to say people dying from mercury poison of coal? And the answer is definitively, it's way more dangerous to be near a coal plant. Now, do I want, I mean, right. I live, you know, I live uh, downwind of San Onofre, you know, San Onofre or the, the, the big bg e nuke that's on the coast, right? And like, you know, we're in an earthquake zone. Like, I think a lot of thought has to be put into how do we develop a lot of safety around these things? But again, this is like one of those hard choices. If you really want to have zero emission baseload energy and you don't want to cover the planet with wind turbines, nukes are a really, really good option. And they're, and they're, you know, the public imagination around nuclear has been largely shaped, in my opinion, by a couple of movies in the 1970s. Um, and when you get into the facts, it's not, I'm not saying it's not dangerous, but we deal with dangerous things every day. And I think it has to be part of the mix because we can build them quickly. Um, there's zero emission and they last a long time. And, and again, I feel like if we invested and gave incentives for as an example on how to repurpose spent nuclear fuel i'm sure we could have people who would come up with ways to de-escalate the you know the, the dangerous byproducts and things like that so i think it is a viable option uh and i think it's going to come to pass by, by the way i don't think that'll be at the expense of everything else like i don't i yeah. think it's going to be nuclear and a lot of other things just wondering jim if the you know, the COVID conditions over the past 18 months have changed your your views on anything um, compared to the way they were before. It's obviously accelerated, you know, some technological uh, trends and perhaps held back others, shown us things we can and can't do without. Just just whether that that there's any significance of that in the long run or whether it's just a just a blip. I don't know that it's changed my views on climate. I know it's changed a lot of my more rightward leaning Colleague, um, uh, and, and I'll tell you exactly how I did it. Right, I think again, you know, there's a lot of people. I think there's a lot, and I, don't, I think this stretches across the political spectrum. I think there's a lot of people who would just rather not that this be a problem, right? Because it's, it's, I mean, it's like it's super intractable, and it's like it's hard, and you know it's beyond our lifespan and there's all sorts of reasons that everybody was just like, you know, Hey man, can't we just like go to the beach, like, you know, go on a holiday and have a good time. Like, but I think what, what COVID has served, if I can summarize it, I've had a lot of friends be like, Hey man, this feels like a dress rehearsal for what happens when a science, like a scientifically driven thing gets out of control. And it feels like climate's getting out of control. And it feels, it feels like it might even be bigger than, than COVID. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to think about it, guys, which is, I think a lot of people, uh, particularly my more, like I said, more rightward leading friends who are tend to be, you know, financially driven are like, so what happens to my, you know, like they're, they're thinking, you can see them being like, so if this, if I can't get insurance for my multi-million dollar pad in South Florida, is it really worth 10 million, 20 million bucks. And you're like, you might want to think about that, 
right? And so I, I think it's making people realize that if you ignore a, 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 a we'll call it a science-based system, um, it, you do it at your peril. Or, or maybe said another way, like science doesn't give a damn what you think. Like it's going to happen, right? And so I think there's a lot of people who sort of had that in the back of their mind, like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's the problem of all those, you know, greenies, whatever. And now as they've sat in their house and been confined to their house for a year and a half on something that we actually do have the technology and we still didn't do that great of a job, they're looking at climate and being like, I'm not even sure these guys have a technology fix for all this. And it seems to be, you know, touches everything. Boy, that's kind of scary. Maybe we ought to do something about that. And so I'm like, again, I'm trying to not browbeat them. I'm just like, yep, you've arrived at the right conclusion. So let's get on with it. Right. <laughs> rather than rather than spending my time yelling at them for not seeing it my way, just be like, great, you're here. Glad you're here. Let's go. Okay. So, so just to move on, I'd like to ask you about a, a study uh, that's been produced for The Lancet. I think it's been covered on the BBC website for the, in the last week or so just uh, taking 10,000 16 to 25 year olds and taking their views on, you know, areas uh, of related to the climate. Uh, and there's some pretty depressing statistics that come out of that in terms of the views of that age group on you know, the prospects for the future, the prospects and their inclination to have children and those sorts of things. So uh, if you were to sit down uh, with someone in that age group for five minutes, uh, what is it that you'd say to them to maybe make them a little bit more optimistic about the future? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I I was a, a undergraduate. I, I had a degree in philosophy and, and in mathematics, and um, so I spent a fair amount of time thinking about philosophic issues as an undergrad. And um, here's what I would say: uh, it's, it's maybe a, has a more philosophic bent. Um, there's a there's a very famous uh, sort of I don't know if it's apocryphal, but story about a, a French guy named Pascal and, and this thing called Pascal's Wager, and effectively what they what they asked him and what he came out with was, you know, should you believe in God? Uh, and effectively what Pascal said was, well, I'm going to choose to uh, believe in God because if I get to the end of my life and, you know, and, and you know, I die and, you know, on, on I go up to the, the pearly gates and St. Peter's there and I, you know, and I've been a good uh, uh, believer, they're going to let me in. Um, and so that's, that's a great outcome for me. Um, and conversely, if it turns out that I've lived my whole life doing good works and good deeds in hope of getting into heaven and I get to the end and it turns out it's just lights out and there's nothing else coming, then I've lived a life that made me feel good and I had faith and, you know, and, and friendship and involvement and all these things, doing all these good works because I thought I was going to get in. In either case, right, it's a life well lived. And so what I would say to someone who's 16 to 18 is, look, climate is super scary. And, and, and you may feel very helpless in the face of it. But the reality is, if you take Pascal and you overlay it on climate, you arrive at some interesting things, which is if you think and choose to be part of trying to fix climate and you spend your whole life and we all do it collectively, you, the, the next generation, and, and fix the problem and you all take a piece of it and it works out, then, then you were part of you know one of the greatest seminal changes of humanity, which is we saved ourselves from a, a pretty dire situation. And, and conversely, if it turns out that it's all going to just end in environmental degradation and darkness, then at least you lived your life in a positive way with the belief that there was going to be a good outcome. In either situation, that will allow you to not live 
with what is clearly, uh, you know, what I would characterize as climate depression, right? And so you need to make the bet and, and, and engage in an act of faith that the problem can be solved. And I'm here to tell you, the technical piece already exists. It's a question of political will and money. And, and that those are human creations and you can fix them. But you have to make the bet, the decision that your action collectively in, in conjunction with other collective action will get us there. The one thing I can tell you for certain is if we all decide that we can't, then it won't happen. So you got to engage in the act of faith. And I don't mean it in a religious way, just faith. You got to believe that that which is not yet here can be if we will it to be so. For this mini series, we hadn't thought about asking uh, a closure question. But on our previous uh, interview that we did on the same topic last week, Roberto Barr, our head of ESG, asked our guest a question that is very much related to what Andrew just asked and you just answered. But I'm going to uh, ask it with a little bit of a twist, which is if you had the exact same five minutes with not with kids and children, but with the investment community at large, what would your pitch be and what would you be telling them? Take 1% of your portfolio on an annualized basis, invest it in direct air capture technologies across the board, just anything that comes across that's either technology or asset finance or otherwise, and then put it in a, in a bucket that has a 20-year time horizon. That's very interesting. Jim, thank you very much. 